Good morning and welcome to the latest Patrick Henry podcast, where we hold the world's elite's feet to the fire and actually hold them to the revolutionary standard of a meritocracy, judging them by what they do and by not, not by what titles they accrue. Uh, welcome to everyone for the week. I am back from a long weekend in Rome. And often people say to me, you know, as an American, I, I have this feeling that people think I'm Gene Kelly dancing down the Seine. Um, you know, looking for Leslie Caron, one would think, uh, an American in Paris or something like that. And usually it's not like that at all. You're, you're jet lagged. It's very unromantic what I do. You're jet lagged. Uh, you are, you're traveling, but you never get to enjoy being anywhere. Um, and uh, it's far less romantic than it sounds. But frankly, this weekend was because Sarah had some work on Monday and we took some time and went down a day early to Rome, where I was her, her eye candy. Um, I was the I was the consort, and we went down to Rome for a day, and we saw this beautiful exhibition uh, a, a, where archaeology has been done since the 1920s of where Caesar was assassinated uh, at the foot of the, the statue, ironically, of Pompey, his great rival in the first triumvirate. And this is now open to the public, and Sarah's sister worked on this project and we went and saw it, and I got to see where Caesar was, in my view, as a good Jeffersonian, rightly assassinated by Brutus and the other Republicans. Uh, but there it was, and it was very exciting. And they've done this wonderful walkway where you stand above all of that's going on and go and see it. And then we went to what's left of the – we just happened – this is the great thing about Europe. We, we happened upon, for no reason at all, what was left of the temple of Hadrian. And they'd done this remarkable immersive process, this temple that used to sit in Rome, what's left of it, what's, what's happened to that building since um, it was founded by after the death of Hadrian early in the second century. Um, and so that was very, very exciting uh, to see as well. And, um, and then we, I took the train back and here I am. But it was being, you know, Gene Kelly dancing down the street. Every once in a while, it's good for me to remember what we're fighting for in Western civilization. And it was one of those weekends. So I am refreshed. And we will do three, probably not the normal standard. We will get back to the culture uh, around the world in 20 minutes and the book as soon as I can. But these are extraordinary times. And so we're going to continue just doing foreign policy for a bit until we get back into a groove soon. Um but I wanted to talk today and do a Patrick Henry podcast. We haven't in a while. And there's a great example of, once again, the Western elite have no sense of why people hate them. Because they think having credentials is the same thing as accomplishing anything. I remember when I learned basic Western civilization, just the facts, ma'am, you know, the thing that kids don't learn anymore, the basic facts of, of, the, of the various presidencies, what they accomplished, what they failed at, what were the issues at hand? So you begin to get a sense of who these people were and the challenges they confronted. And there would be a list of things they did or didn't do. That's precisely what we don't have now. We have radio silence. When I'm asked about Hillary Clinton and when I say, well, what did she accomplish? I'm lamely met by people saying, well, she had an awful lot of miles. You know, she had more, more, more miles as Secretary of State than anyone else, to which I would respond contemptuously. I have an awful lot of frequent flyer miles, too. Um, you can ask BA, but that doesn't mean I've done much of anything. It's what I've done starting a business from nothing and making it globally successful that matters. Not that I have a whole bunch of miles. 
And they'd say, well, she was a senator and secretary of state. I don't want to hear what her resume is. I want to know what she did in these positions. That's the key fact. We've had a lot of presidents. More than half have been failures. We've had a lot of kings and queens of England. More than half have been failures. Most human beings fail. Some are mediocre and some are moderately successful. And every once in a while we get lucky and someone's successful in a historical way. But you have to tell me what they've done, not what titles they've held. That just means they've been placeholders. That doesn't mean they've done anything. And people are on to this. I don't want to hear what title you've held. I want to know what you did with the title. Uh, Barack Obama is the greatest example, the most overrated human being <clears throat> on the planet. Literally, Politico ran an article not long ago saying they couldn't decide if Barack Obama was a good president or a great president. And I know John Harris, a uh, worshiper of Obama, but a bright guy despite that. And I've talked to him a number of times and I remember saying to him, what do you think the Satanid Obama accomplished? I mean, historically, tell me what you think he did. Not that you like him or that he wears a suit well or that he that he can speak in rounded paragraphs, all of which I'll give you and all of which is is noteworthy. What did he accomplish? We can argue about health care. I think it's terrible. You think it's good, but it's certainly something historical. OK, what else? Dot, dot, dot. Silence. Silence. It's an offensive question. And they're right. It isn't offensive, but it is a revolutionary question. Because I'm holding people to Republican standards, small r, in a republic, we should be judged meritocratically by what we do and by what we don't do, by success and by failure. One of the reasons I think America, the American society is in such difficulty at the moment is that we aren't being punished for failure in our system. And I'll give you a great example. The biggest foreign policy challenge of the generation before mine the Best and the Brightest, as David Halberstam's wonderful book. Add that to your list, by the way, community. It's a long book, but it flies by, beautifully written by David Halberstam, The Best and the Brightest. And what he sets out to do, he had been a correspondent who actually served in Vietnam. And what he sets out to do is figure out how do these guys with the greatest credentials imaginable get us into Vietnam, get us into the biggest foreign policy catastrophe in the United States in memory. And he looks at it sociologically. He looks at them historically and sociologically as individuals and as a group that had titles but didn't really have the accomplishments of the generation before, the FDR, Truman, Eisenhower generation. And he follows them through Kennedy and Johnson, seeing that this is the reason. Life came easily to them but they didn't really understand the world very well. It's a brilliant reading. It is the Patrick Henry podcast of its time. So do read the David Halberstam book. It looks like a murder weapon, but I guarantee it will go very quickly. And he holds them to this standard. He's a left-wing populist, and I'm a right-wing populist, but there's an awful lot of overlap. I got to meet Halberstam late in his life out in California, and I had a great conversation with him about his book, which is one of the best parts of my job, is that you meet some really interesting people and get to talk to them and learn from them. And this is the standard we should hold everyone to in a republic. That generation of guys went away. Bundy, the national security advisor, never became president of Harvard. The dean, the overall, whatever they're called, the overall person in charge of Harvard, although everyone thought he'd get there because of his utter complicity in Vietnam. 
Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, who I did meet as an older man at the Council on Foreign Relations meetings, was still actively shunned by people. People wouldn't talk to him when I met him um, in the 90s because of what he'd done in Vietnam. I was all too happy to talk to him. He was contrite. He was intelligent. He was eloquent. He took responsibility for what he'd done, and he didn't go on to bigger and better things, despite having been the Secretary of Defense very ably through the Cuban Missile Crisis, despite having helped run Ford Motor Company successfully before that. McNamara didn't keep going on to more sinecures after the catastrophe of his lack of leadership over Vietnam. In other words, they paid the price, that generation, for being utterly wrong about Vietnam. Contrast that with the cheerleaders for Iraq, the biggest foreign policy debacle of my generation. Have they paid the Republican price? No, John Bolton went on to become national security advisor. David Frum still has a job writing and pontificating about us intervening. Ann Applebaum, ditto, has a job having, having destroyed the Middle East. She thought she'd move on to Central and Eastern Europe uh, with Ukraine. These people have not been chastened in any way. And in fact, Applebaum has insanely said she'd invade Iraq again, that it was the right thing to do. Robert Kagan has gone on to glory. Um, Max Boot has been made a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. These people have, in effect, been the equivalent in the American aristocracy of ennobled, despite the fact that they ran the country into a ditch over Iraq. They weren't held back. There was no penalty for being utterly wrong about the most important thing out there. And if there's no penalty for meritocratically being wrong in a democratic system, you'll keep being wrong. You'll keep being arrogant. You'll keep getting sinecures and you'll keep causing trouble. And that's what happens. The glory of a system that's Republican is that it corrects that people who are wrong meritocratically are supposed to go away as the Kennedy people did after Vietnam. They're not supposed to get columns written by the Atlantic, Fran Applebaum, Max Boot, writing for the Council on Foreign Relations, Robert Kagan intoning gravely that we should intervene everywhere all at once all the time from the Washington Post. And this is taken as wisdom, and these people are celebrated. What did they accomplish? Iraq. And if Iraq is what you accomplished, guess what? You shouldn't have a job running a lemonade stand. We have to correct, or we're in terrible, terrible trouble. And all that is kind of background to David Cameron, uh, ghost name from the past, ghost from the past, David Cameron, former prime minister of the UK, middling at best prime minister of the UK, though he looks better after the car crash of Liz Truss, after the car crash of Boris Johnson, uh, the Cameron days after the car crash of Theresa May, David Cameron is looking better because people are having amnesia, because he's not being held to standards. And so Rishi Sunak, uh, auditioning to be John Major, and certainly the Tories are about to be walloped in about a year, um, after having this uh, clown show um, of leaders on the right. And again, I, I speak as, as, a, as a firm friend of the British Tories. I write regularly for Conservative Home. This is certainly my party if I were if I were in the UK and I have close ties and warm ties with many people there and love writing for conservative home and I'm about the only I'm the in-house American there uh, but this has been a clown show and so Rishi Sunak having run out of anyone evidently of any merit whatsoever within the parliament has gone back to this blast from the past and brought David Cameron back as foreign secretary to which all the establishment papers are saying 
who, by the way, were wrong about Iraq, wrong about Afghanistan, wrong about the financial crisis, wrong about Trump, wrong about COVID. You see a pattern here. Okay, these are the, these are the people at Chatham House. These are the people at the FT. These are the people at the time who, who were wrong about everything, but somehow are still in the elite establishment and somehow have absolutely no sense of self-reflection whatsoever. And they're all saying, isn't it great? We've brought David Cameron back a safe pair of establishment hands to guide us through this last year while Rishi Sunak gets ready to run to be prime minister and lose, but hopefully lose in a valiant way and limits the damage. And what a great move bringing David Cameron back. And this shows once again, the Western elite have absolutely no sense of self-reflection and absolutely no sense of why people hate them. Let's judge David Cameron by his record. And let's just look at three basic foreign policy issues that came up while he was prime minister. China and the rise of China and how to deal with it. The intervention in Libya by the West that got rid of Muammar Gaddafi. And then lastly, his efforts, and he assumed positive efforts, to renegotiate a deal with the European Union. These are the three basic foreign policy issues that came up during David Cameron's premiership, all of them catastrophic failures. And so what do we do? Let's make him foreign secretary. Indeed, it's like giving an arsonist a match and shows once again the Western elite have no sense of what matters, of merit, let alone of self-reflection. Let's take each of these in turn. China, in some ways the most important. China was rising and every country in Europe had to decide how to deal with this. There was pressure from the Americans, their allies, to be more hawkish about China, to be more cautious about dealing with China, but not David Cameron and his deputy George Osborne, who now has a job running everything. Another example of a member of the elite who's been rewarded by being made head of literally everything. I remember a period where every single chairmanship in England seemed to be going to George Osborne to reward him for the slap bang job he'd done. I don't understand this. And you wonder why Britain, which we need to be as a head of the Anglosphere, the head of being a great power working with the United States, we need them to be serious and they're ambling into irrelevance, not at the rate of the Europeans, but they are. And this is dangerous, dangerous for anybody who cares about the UK and the US. And the reason for this is that you keep rewarding failure. And Osborne particularly, but his buddy Cameron, and they were close on this issue and many others, decided that they were going to have, as they called it, a golden age with China. They were going to ignore China's encroachments into the Indo-Pacific, ignore even then the bullying of students, ignore the human rights violations against the Uyghurs, ignore what was going on in Tibet, ignore the menacing noises about Taiwan, the South China Sea, the East China Sea, you get the point, ignore the character of that regime and throw themselves into its arms because it was growing. This is a lot like businesses that I consult with. who, When they heard the word China, they thought, make a lot of money without doing their political risk due diligence and wondering what kind of regime they were dealing with. And the businesses are, of course, part and parcel of a regime in state-owned communism, but nobody seemed to know that. When they heard China, they just thought made a lot of money. I think that was similar to Cameron and Osborne's thinking. So it now, in retrospect, looks incredibly dangerous and naive what Cameron and Osborne did. And yet they threw Britain 
into the arms of China to the point that Huawei was going to be involved in making British infrastructure, a decision only struck down and begrudgingly under Boris Johnson after years and years of American pressure that Britain not subject its infrastructure, its telephony, to a Chinese state-owned company. That would be like let Stalin run the American television network. And this was what Cameron advocated. Let's have Huawei in. Let's let them run everything because we want some of their money. And they're the future, so we're going to have to engage. So let's throw our arms into it and not have a um, political risk-cost-benefit analysis. Let's enthusiastically get ahead of our European rivals, throw ourselves into the arms of the Chinese, let Huawei run our telephony, let them run our computers, let them run our infrastructure, and not really worry if that's a huge, gigantic, off-the-chart political risk. It seems even ridiculously appeasing, it seems naive, and it seems downright stupid. And that's what these guys did. And worse, after he left being prime minister, Cameron went on to do lobbying involving China. You know, this is extraordinary. And now we're letting the guy loose on the single most important foreign policy issue of our time, how to deal with a China that's now not rising, but peaking, as you know, I think, but the most dangerous country in the world, the pure competitor superpower to the United States. And we're letting this guy with this record be foreign secretary. We're giving him an arsonist a match. Second, Libya. This is easy. I, I, I'm often, I've been to a number of meetings, and I'll keep their names private to protect the guilty, where I'm told not to mention Libya in front of Italian diplomats because it would embarrass them if I brought up the single most catastrophic, stupid, boneheaded, boneheaded blunder of their existence, which is that we got rid of Muammar Gaddafi, admittedly a bad guy, and left Libya utterly chaotic. We had ISIS forming on the southern border of Libya. We took a state that was run by a bad man but was relatively stable, and we left it an absolute mess. We have al-Qaeda there. We have tribal warfare there. We had ISIS there. We've had an ongoing endemic civil war. Surely anybody looking at this would say this was a mistake. And yet Obama and his buddy David Cameron and southern Europeans, particularly the Italians, but Europe as a whole, said... In their Wilsonian fervor, this sound familiar? Again, things are as they are. As Aristotle said, what is, is. You can't talk your way around it, market your way around it. They decided to take a country that was stable but run by a bad man, but one we could do business with, one we could talk to, and what did we do? We smashed it, leaving it in utter chaos, and very bad elements came in, and it's still in chaos to this day. So I hope I embarrass every European diplomat. Because in their Wilsonian fervor, they smashed a country, leaving us utter chaos behind in a far worse situation. And they violated the first rule of medicine, which should be the first rule of political risk. Do no harm. Do no harm. And David Cameron was cheerleading right in there with Obama. We have to stand up to him. We have to knock him out. Uh, somehow Libya, which isn't even a peripheral became, this is a primary interest, we have to intervene, NATO has to get involved, and we destroyed a country that was functional and left chaos in its wake and then got bored and left broadly, and leaving it to the UN to do what it always does, gesture impotently as though the bird on the rhino were driving the rhino. Let me let you in on a secret, UN members. You're the bird. You have no army. You have no power. Nobody cares what you think. International law doesn't exist if it's not enforceable. You leave out the rhino. 
and you think the bird directs it. Let me let you in on the motive force of history. Nation states in our modern era, since the Peace of Westphalia, they run the world, not you, not a bunch of unelected, European-educated bureaucrats. And yet again, David Cameron, cheerleading with Obama, smashes a country that was perfectly functional, leaving us behind the basket case that is Libya, an endemic civil war, in tribal war, in chaos, hurting the people of Libya, destabilizing North, Northern Africa, and yes, we decide he'd be a great foreign secretary. And we wonder why everyone hates the elite. And then lastly, what finally led to the, the undoing of Cameron was his views about the EU. Cameron saw himself, and I remember at the time, as kind of Angela Merkel's naughty nephew. They had this odd but, 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 but profound rapport, and he thought through charm, national interests would go away. And this is a mistake of many Wilsonians throughout history, that they think the basic power forces of the world matter more than personality. Personality does matter. I'm a historian. It matters a lot. But you can't get away from the basic interests that guide a country. And Cameron thought he could negotiate some new deal with the EU and then have the referendum. He was being pressured by the right wing of the Tory party to call a referendum on Brexit. And he agreed to doing it, miscalculating that in doing this, he would get a new deal from the EU, meaning Germany, meaning Merkel, and that this new deal would enable him to win the referendum because with a new deal, he'd be able to swing the vote. And that was, we forget, the thinking that lay behind Brexit. That was the, the, the tactics that lay behind Brexit. And of course, this didn't work, that for all his charm, for all his good humor, for all his poshness, and again, I went to St. Andrews, I understand this, um, Cameron swanned off to see Merkel. She listened sympathetically to him and said, can you cut me some sort of enhanced deal within the European Union because I have to go deal, as he would put it, with my right wing at home. And if I'm going to win this referendum, I have to offer them something better. Merkel listened sympathetically and did nothing. Did nothing. He utterly miscalculated the people in Europe would give him anything to come home with. So it became a catastrophe for Cameron politically. He headed back with nothing, thereby proving the point of the Brexiteers that we're not gaining anything by being in the EU, because when we actually ask for any kind of offsets, they laugh in our faces and say, tough luck, you signed up for everything, we're holding you for everything. That defeats the basic argument of the establishment about joining the EU, which is that we have a lot more power from within to affect things. Cameron, by doing this tactic, proved there was very little power from within. This is some sort of sainted view, the shibboleth of received wisdom of the elite. I love the word shibboleth from the Bible. And it was a shibboleth that somehow being in would allow for influence. This is what the Foreign Office and Whitehall always think. Of course, when it came to it, they had almost no influence at all. The Germans said, no, we won't make any exceptions for you. Cameron, having had his entire point disproven, went home, went on to defeat um, over the Brexit referendum and realized his position as prime minister was untenable and resigned. So yet again, his brilliance in calculating what's going on in Europe makes him an ideal candidate to Brendan secretary. You might note the irony dripping from my voice. But worse than all this, over China, over Libya, over the European Union, David Cameron was wrong about all the big calls that in his premiership he had to deal with. Wrong about them all. And what happened for being wrong? We make him foreign secretary. The Western elite have absolutely lost, and until they regain it, we will be in decline and in peril. 
The Western elite have lost a sense that you reward people when they are successful in policy terms and you don't reward them when they fail. This has nothing to do with politics. This has everything to do with policy. I don't care how many miles Hillary Clinton has flown. I don't care how uh, charming Barack Obama is and how well he gives a speech. And I don't care how polished David Cameron, that old Etonian, is. Um, that's Those aren't qualifications to be president or foreign secretary. Indeed, I ask the, the radical, revolutionary, meritocratic question, what did they do? And if they didn't do something positive overall, we probably shouldn't put them back in power. This, of course, are words that the Western elite don't understand, from Obama to Hillary to Cameron, frankly, to the neocons. And until we understand them, the Western elite will continue to have no sense of why people hate them. But making David Cameron foreign secretary isn't giving foreign policy to a safe pair of hands for the UK. It's giving an arsonist a match. Thank you very much. Good to do a fire-breathing Patrick Henry podcast to start our week. Just back from Rome. We'll do it around the world in 20 minutes later on in the week, maybe two. And then hopefully next week, get back to normal before I fly off to New York for a series of meetings in a war game with my friends at Credit Agricole. I look forward to that. Uh, again, for all of you who've been subscribing, and again, things is, uh, during a crisis this happens are going through the roof. Thank you so much. Please do keep subscribing to our community as it grows and grows and grows and explodes. I mean, we're now running a me medium-sized newspaper, <laughs> and it's wonderful. And I love it. It's my favorite part of my job at the moment is to think out loud with you all. And so please do keep subscribing. And for those of you who have subscribed, again, we're only asking... $70 a year, $7 a month, or $70 a year. This gives us the time and the passion that it really deserves as we grow from a medium-sized newspaper, hopefully, into a great newspaper and one where the content is unrivaled. And we actually keep to the standards that we hold the rest of the world to. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. And on to the next.